warm welcomes from all of us at the Missouri School of Journalism. This is Global Journalist, and I'm Benjamin Brink. For this week's program, I will be sitting in for Jason McClure. At a time when the news industry is being called out for alleged accounts of fake news, it's important to take a step back and look both at the practice of journalism and its role in our society. This week, we will be taking a look at how the media industry has and has not changed through the eyes of Jim Lehrer, Mizzou grad, ex-Marine, and journalist extraordinaire with a storied career spanning over five decades and 12 presidential debates. Global journalist Kathy Kiley sat down with Lehrer before his induction into the Missouri Hall of Fame. I came to Mizzou strictly because, and solely because, of its reputation. For the first half of our program, Jim Lehrer talks about his career and how it's similar and dissimilar from today's media landscape. After graduating the Missouri School of Journalism and serving in the Marine Corps, Jim Lehrer made his start in journalism as a newspaper reporter in Dallas. I was checking the telephone line back to the city desk downtown, and the rewrite man says, well, look, are they going to have the bubble top on the presidential limousine? If the weather was bad, there would be a bubble top to protect the Kennedys from the rain. And uh, it had rained that morning in Dallas. The Secret Service agent was standing at the top of the ramp, I happen to know. And I said, said to him, Mr. Soros, I see the bubble top is up. Rewrite wants to know if it's going to be up during the thing. And he looks up at the sky. I'll never forget this. He looks up at the sky, and it's clear. The agent that I'm talking to then yells to the other agents who are in charge of the, of the motorcade, lose the bubble top. What uh, from that experience stands out in your mind? Kathy, what the Kennedy assassination did for me. I had been a, that was in 1963. I had been a newspaper reporter since 1959, so I was still learning. But what I learned that day, that, I worked for the afternoon paper at the time, the Dallas the Times, Times Herald. Herald. The Times Herald, right. And my assignment that day, because the, the president was coming, President and Mrs. Kennedy were going to be only going to be in Dallas about three hours just for this luncheon. And it uh, was right on our deadline. And so everybody in the news department had some assignment to cover because we had three or four editions and all that sort of stuff. And my assignment was to cover the arrival of the Kennedys at Love Field and then stay there until they came back and cover the departure. And, uh, and anyhow, and I was right there at the airplane. You, you can see me in, in way, way back in the background in some of the pictures and all of that uh, of, the, of the arrival and all that. And then anyhow, uh, I, we, I went into the terminal and then the word came and I, got through, I went, ran to a telephone, got the, the uh, uh, how I got through, I do not remember. I got, it's still a miracle to me. I got through to the city desk and they said, Go to the hospital. Uh, the president is there, and the and you know so so the hospital was just two or three minutes from me. So I went there just as they were announcing that Kennedy was dead, and then they some when the reporters there said, hey, hey, they want you to go to the police station. So I got there just as Oswald was being brought in. I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I haven't been told what I'm here for. I was one of those people who asked, hey, did you shoot the president? And as a result of what, of my, you know, just a, what, it was a miracle, really, and, but it changed my whole approach to journalism forever, was the managing editor assigned me to cover the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination, and I did that for six months. I, I ran into every culvert. I did, I investigated every kind of uh, conspiracy theory that was floating because 
there were no Pulitzer Prizes to be won by anybody who proved that it was one man alone firing three rounds in 15 seconds. That was that was it had to be a conspiracy. And the, for the reporter who could find the conspiracy, there was a Pulitzer Prize, and I was one of them. There were 2,000 or maybe or more reporters all over the, from all over the world who were covering the story. And the bottom line is though, to answer your question directly. I came away from that whole experience with a forever ingrained, forever DNA that I knew for a fact that everything was fragile. That any given moment, the phone could ring. And when I later became city editor of the Times Herald, I was a fanatic. If the phone rang on the city desk and it wasn't answered on the first ring, somebody's head was going to roll. Because that's how it all happens, and you have to be alert to it. And that, that at any given moment, alone, it turns out one man with a rifle gets off three rounds in 15 seconds and changes the course of history. I never forgot that from that day on to this, that I was in the business and in, my, in, in the soul of the business uh, of, of being aware of that, all the, not, not in any kind of fear way but it, and not any kind of pleasurable way, but just realizing. And, and of course, there were two big assassinations afterward. There were all kinds of things, uh, you know, things like called the Vietnam War. Lehrer's breakout moment on the national stage came covering something that will sound familiar to Americans today, hearings aimed at setting up a presidential impeachment. The ones Lehrer covered would have been really historic, had Richard Nixon not resigned. He would have been the first U.S. president impeached since Andrew Johnson right after the Civil War. By midsummer, the commercial TV networks, which had all carried the hearings at the start, had in large part gone back to their regularly scheduled programming. For its part, public television wrestled with a different concern. The very idea of this kind of coverage had been controversial from the start. Going gavel to gavel, mm -hmm. the way we were going, uh, in the daytime and, and particularly repeating it at night, it, this had never happened before. President Nixon had no knowledge of or involvement in either the Watergate affair itself or the subsequent efforts of a cover-up of the Watergate. It will be equally clear, despite all the unfounded allegations to the contrary, that I had no such knowledge or involvement. So unless those tapes are made public or some other revelation comes our way, the senators, as well as the rest of us who are interested, may have to eventually make an ultimate choice between believing John Dean or Bob Haldeman. That's the way it looks to me at least at three or so in the morning. Feel free to disagree. After Bill Clinton's impeachment trial in the late 90s, Trump's might seem less momentous, but it's no less important. Jim Lehrer talks about what's changed and what hasn't since the Watergate hearings on Richard Nixon. One big difference, social media, and the way it creates an echo chamber by letting people pick the news that reinforces what they think they already know. That must be right, right? 99% of the American people who cared about information, they, they, they all read a local newspaper, and they all had a shared set of facts as a result of that. And they watched the same nightly news program, one of the three nightly news programs, and maybe they read Time and Newsweek, and that was it. But when they sat down to argue or at a, at a, over at a bar or at a restaurant or in somebody's living room or back porch or whatever yard, uh, they sat down with a shared set of facts. And uh, the, what's, what's in this new world order, 
where where you now that's I mentioned five, six, seven ways to get information. Well, now there are hundreds, if not thousands, of ways to get information or opinions or analysis of those of that information or those news new quote news stories, and it's become very very difficult to uh, to separate. The, th- the three, three, three basic forms of journalism, straight news, analysis, and opinion, all of them are legitimate, but each one of them needs to be separated from the other. The person who does the reporting shouldn't be doing the analysis. The person who does the analysis shouldn't be doing the opinions. These are all separate functions of different different schools of journalism. I don't. I mean, schools in a lowercase. And um, uh, it, 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 so that's very different to begin with. During the Nixon era, these different schools of journalism were kept separate. If you flip on cable news today, opinion blends with fact. Lehrer says that this affects perceptions of politics, even for politicians. In terms of the parallels, otherwise, it's, it's fairly similar. Uh, here you have from the outside world uh, people leaking about uh, uh, the inside world, uh, and journalism, here again, journalism played a key role in that, the Washington Post in particular, about what happened in Watergate, and then the Watergate hearings, and here, but here's where it's different, really hugely different. The approach to finding the facts, the Congress of the United States in 1971-72, Republicans and Democrats realized that there is a need to get information to the public but to them, to the, the members of the Congress wanted to know what, what the hell happened in Watergate. And uh, they worked together. And uh, particularly the Senate Watergate hearings, the ones that Robin and I were, you, you said it exactly right. And it was a big deal for us. And, uh, but Howard Baker, Republican who was vice chairman, Sam Irvin, the Democrat who was the chairman, they worked like this, you know, and they had each had their own staffs, investigative staffs, and there were other members, other senators on the committee, but all of them involved, they were all involved together in trying to find out what happened. Yes, there were partisan approaches, which, I mean, under, you know, I'm a Republican, so I want to know that I'm a Democrat, you know, but there was never, my maybe I missed it. It's conceivable that I did, I wasn't paying close enough attention. That but, seems hard to believe. Okay, okay. <laughs> but the fact is, I never, I, I was very much into all of that, as McDill was. I never saw what I would call a blatant partisan move by any of the key players in the search for information about Watergate. That is terribly new. What's going on now is just the opposite of that. Three presidential constitutional inquiries during one reporter's lifetime. What's also on repeat? Politics and presidential elections. Jim Lehrer has covered a lot of them. More notably, he moderated 12 debates spanning four presidencies, Bush in 1988 to Obama in 2012, more than anybody else which makes him something of an expert on what it might look like in 2020. But he's a little shy about offering his opinion. Well, here's the problem. I got a problem. Uh, I am on the commission for presidential debates, and there are only, you know, 20 of us. And uh, the one thing I do not need to do as uh, need for the commission or for America is for any of the commissioners like me to be talking about the on, the upcoming debate, so I have nothing to say about what's going to happen in 2020. Uh, we are we are now planning all of that and to make it available to the candidates and all of that. And it's uh, it's going to be these things are always difficult. There's an awful lot riding on it. I mean, every just about everybody who casts a vote 
either watches the debate live or watches repeats or watches pieces of it is affected in me. So it's extremely important. Has it changed a lot running the debates? No, it hasn't, except that the format has changed. And I, I feel I feel good about what I, how I've contributed to that, not as a member of the commission, but when I was back when I used to work for a living and also when I was uh, as a debate moderator, the whole idea was is to open open the debates more to rather than, okay, we're going to ask a question, one minute answer, two minute this, you know, to drop that and, and let the candidates kind of mix it up and, and let it stay on a subject, et cetera. And so I helped uh, in my, my small way, I helped contribute to, I, I helped get that done. And so that is now part and parcel of the debates. It's frustrating. It's much more difficult to be a moderator now than it was when I first started. Why do you say that? Well, because you've got when you're sitting, you've got two candidates, and one of them gives an answer, and the other, and then they start, and then they start, maybe they're not attacking each other, but they're, they they talk over each other, or this one, you know, doesn't listen to this, and so as a moderator, what you want to do is stay out of it, but 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 just come in when it's when you need to make time time issue when there are time issues, and so what and, you're saying is it's harder to be a traffic cop these days. Absolutely right, and and it, it was easy when you said, "Okay, so, and and uh, uh, Mr. President, you have two minutes." Say, so "Okay, you have one minute response," and that's it. Then you move on, and uh, it's no longer that. So they, so the moderators, uh, they have to really know what they're doing. Is it hard to get people to moderate these debates because it's such no, a? No, no, everybody who everybody who's ambitious wants to moderate one of the debates. The problem is is uh, is um, Getting people who understand that this isn't about them. This is not about. This is not a career move. A moderator of a presidential debate, one of these presidential debates, and I know this because I was one of them, as you say, as you said, many more than times one twelve. Time. I felt, <laughs> but I thought I was part of a process of the of democracy in action. I mean, not a journalist. I wasn't a journalist when I was moderating a presidential debate. I was a moderator. I was there to help the American people understand what these two candidates or three candidates, and when I also did Clinton, George H. W. Bush, and Ross Perot. But it was the people need to know who these people are. And remember, uh, by the time these debates come, they come right before the election. So most of the people have already made their minds. So they they watch the debates for confirming, but there are a few percentage points of folks have not made up the not made up their minds. And also the other thing is, which is critical to this, is that they already know what the issues are for the most part. People who followed the election, and all that. So they want to know who this person is. So the body language becomes as important almost and sometimes more important than the real language. So if somebody comes over as a jerk or comes over a really kind of nice, open person, even though you might disagree with what he or she is saying, it is, but it's all part of the, of the voter focusing, really focusing finally before they cast a vote on who this person, even I don't, may not agree with this person. When I covered debates, we often used to say that you could tell who won by watching it with the sound off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely right. Oh, and that's a hard lesson to get over to people. Uh, that, and, you know, it's you know, just, you know, the public understands this. It's the professionals who have a problem understanding because it's all, you know, somebody said this and this and this and this and this. But it's, uh, this is hard. This, it's hard work. This is Global Journalist, and I'm Benjamin Brink.
If you like what you hear, check us out on globaljournalist.org. That's where we keep our archived content and online-only exclusives on press freedom and international human rights issues. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. You know the deal. Subscribe to our content for more. But that's quite a list. You want it? We've got it. Or if we don't, let us know when we'll make it happen. Anyway, back to this week's program. Today, we're talking journalism with Jim Lehrer. Journalism would look back to its 20th century roots and report things the old-fashioned way if it were up to this former PBS anchor. Now, I get it. That's the kind of thing I'd be tempted to dismiss with, okay, boomer. But Lehrer's experience and five-decade-spanning career in journalism and 12 presidential debates speaks for itself. So here's what the old-fashioned way means to Lehrer. Journalists of yesteryear and perhaps to journalists of tomorrow. The old-fashioned way is to pay attention to what has happened, what somebody has said, what somebody has done. Report it straight, straight meaning, no adjectives, no adverbs, just say what happened. Billy Bob said this, Sammy Sue said this. The background on it is that Sammy Sue, you know, was a, was, was a left-handed bank robber and, and Billy Bob was a, was a this or that or whatever. And the facts, just the facts, the facts, boom, 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 boom. And that is a, so, that's a, that is a function of mainline straight journalism. And then you turn to somewhere else and, and those inside inside the newspaper, or it can be on the front page, or it can be a, a piece of journalism on television or on radio where somebody is the number one expert on, on some of the subjects that Billy Bob and Sammy Sue are interested in. And that, and that is an, he's, he or she is nonpartisan about it, but is analyzing it. Well, you know, you put what he said and the other guy, and then that's another, that's the middle function. And then the other one is the editorial page writers, the columnists, the commentators, and all of that. And it, this is bad. Here's what I think you should do. Here's what you, how you should vote. You know, so all of these things are, are but you knew the, that was the old-fashioned way. You, that was, you knew what the difference was. This old-fashioned way didn't stop just with the practice of the craft. It shaped coverage, too. And the other old-fashioned way was that there was limited reporting about personal lives. The, now everything, everything goes. And there's, some of that is legit. I mean, there's, there's some personal, for instance, John F. Kennedy's problems with, with uh, womanizing. Was there, every reporter who was covering the White House knew about it or suspected it but never reported it. That would never, ever happen again. And that all ended with, uh, with Watergate and all, and all the fallout from all, from, from all of that. And, uh, the, but you're saying some personal matters are not legitimate topics of public discussion. Right. And that is up to uh, the, 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 ultimately the judgment. The, the people who are going to judge that, of course, are the people who read about it and hear about it and whatever. But see, that's a cop-out. I mean, people say, well, you know, I just think this is terrible. Let me read that story. Yeah. And um, and and it, but it that's what journalism is about. And people who go to the go to the Mizzou Journalism School get trained to say, okay, this is a legitimate public interest that this person is having an affair with his wife's best friend. Okay, but in another story, no, that's not relevant in that in that particular case. And only a journalist can make that decision. And the only journalists who are qualified to do it are people who understand what constitutes relevant, 
relevance, what constitutes uh, required knowledge. In other words, that the people should know about this before they cast a vote or before they have an opinion about something. And that isn't always easy. And that's, that's hard. I mean, and, and, there, and there's no way to get it 100% right all the time. You're always going to make mistakes. That's the one thing McNeil and I used to lecture to our kids, our kids on I said kids, I mean kids on the staff. You know, we're going to do our best, you know, to never make a, mis- make a mistake and get everything right. But no matter how hard we try and no matter how qualified all of us feel we are and all of you are, we're going to screw it up from time to time. And the important thing is to know that we've screwed, screwed it up and be willing to tell people we have done it. When I started in journalism in the early 60s, there was no such thing as an ombudsman or even really uh, criticism of any kind and none internally, and nobody ever corrected a mistake. And I, I remember the Dallas, Dallas Morning News, uh, I had written a story that in an obit I'm sorry to say, where I got something wrong. And so I told the city editor afterward, you know, we need to correct that. And he said, no, 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 can't do that. I said, well, why, why can't we? And he said, well, the policy of the paper is that if you do a lot of corrections, people will lose faith in everything else they read. So you don't want to tell people that we get things <laughs> Can well, that's changed. Yeah, you talk about an old-fashioned yeah. view of things. Yeah, yeah that's So really some changed. things about the old ways should go, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody who practices journalism has got to come to grips with the fact that you're not going to get it right every time. But you've got to understand when you make a mistake and you've got to acknowledge it. And that's an attitude I also learned at Missouri, and I never, never, ever lost it. And it was card- one of the cardinal rules of our, of our little program on, on PBS. Well, I want you to uh, pause for a moment and reflect. As somebody who started on a local newspaper, I want you to reflect a little bit on the state of that particular part of our industry today. Uh, Do you think in such a media-saturated era, should we be concerned that so many local newspapers are struggling to survive? Or does it not matter when there's so much information around? It matters terribly to me, I think, and I think it should should matter to everybody. Yes, there are different ways to do newspapering. It doesn't have to be the old-fashioned print way solely, but but the function, the function of the local newspaper is what is is diminishing and has diminished, and what's at risk is the you know the whole this our whole country is a government with governments. It's a it's a coalition and a collection of governments at all levels. It's all dependent on information. I mean the the vote. You if you don't have an informed electorate and you don't have an informed uh, populace. You don't have a democracy. You don't have a representative democracy. Well, the only vehicle for p- people getting informed about anything is local journalism uh, or, or journalism generally, but in terms of what's happening to the school board, what's happening. And that's important. You, got, you don't have to have kids to care about the school board because you're going to pay for it if you're, you know, if you're alive and well. And, uh, and every element of government, uh, the, 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 the uh, paving the roads and all that sort of stuff, you need to know about this because it affects you. And uh, the, with these newspapers fold or diminish – or in some no longer exist, uh, you know. I mean, they, 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 that function is being lost. And as 
And it's not about the newspapers. It's not about the future of journalism. It's about the future of representative democracy at all levels. And there are attempts being made now to figure this out, to how do you, how do you replace the necessary function of local journalism? Because uh, that's what it's about now. It's replacing it. And, but there are a lot of people worried about it. This isn't just you and me, Kathy. There are a lot of people worried about this, and a lot of effort is being made uh, to, to try to correct it through nonprofit reporting, nonprofit organizations, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I've been laboring in the glories of daily journalism now for 52 years, 36 of them here at the News Hour and its earlier incarnations. And there does come a time to step aside from the daily process, and that time has arrived. You helped establish what is now PBS NewsHour uh, and with your longtime collaborator, mm -hmm. Robin McNeil. Yep. And you, uh, and that, I would say that program is known for its deep dives uh, into important and uh, sometimes not well-explored topics, and for the platform it provides for civil conversation about news. Do you worry about whether there's a future for that kind of journalism? No, not really. I think the, the, the necessity for that, uh, for what we, what we did and what still they continue to do on the news hour, will always be there. It may, uh, may change, and some of the mechanics may change or whatever. I think, uh, you know, the, the, uh, but the need for that is never going, to, never going to go away. Is it harder to get support for that kind of journalism? Oh, sure. It always has been, though. It's a little bit easier now because people realize, oh, my God. You know, in the past, I mean, if, if this goes, and you be specific about the news hour, but if that kind of journalism goes nationally, internationally, and whatever, it also affects the, 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 the ability to self-govern. Because you've got to have information. And the deep dives, as you call them, are, are, are basically just, you know, what happened? Why? And what's the future? I mean, it's essentially a deep dive. Uh, the short dive is that you just pick one of them and, and you just hit it hard, hit it hard quickly and move on. Uh, the, 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 what the news hour, well, we tried to do that and we still do, they still do, is uh, spend, do, try to answer all three of the questions over a period of time and, and be fair about it. And uh, Robert McNeil, who is my, my best friend and uh, mentor on all of this, and we did all this together, but his, his whole thing was we invite people on our program, and they are our guests. We do not invite people on our program to beat up on. If one somebody, you know, and so we always treated people who even who did not deserve <laughs> that kind of treatment, probably, in some of, but it made it easy for us then. In other words, we didn't have to say, oh, well, this is somebody i got to really go after. Or Treated everybody the same way. And when you have airtime, you can take the time to ask that follow-up. Oh, oh, and you can ask the same question five times, and, and the audience feel You don't have to say, oh, you're not answering the question. It's been demonstrated. You ask the same question. You ask the same question four or five times. You realize it's not. Anyhow, bottom line is that's critical to, to in my opinion, critical to uh, becoming an informed citizen. And uh, that type of journalism will, that need for that will never diminish. In conclusion, the way we, we wouldn't do this 
wonderful mazoo thing that you all did at the beginning. <laughs> Here's what we did in 1956. Mazoo Rock Tigers, go! Well, that's it for this edition of Global Journalist, a production of the Reynolds Journalism Institute at the Missouri School of Journalism and KBIA Mid-Missouri Public Radio. Many thanks to Jim Lehrer and you, our audience, for spending time with us. Our director is Travis McMillan, our audio engineer, Takia Thomas, and our executive editor is Kathy Kiley. This has been Benjamin Brink, sitting in for Jason McClure. From all of us at Global Journalist, thanks for tuning in.